This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 60. Can you believe we're at episode 60? I just have to digress and say, wow, I can't believe we've done 60 episodes. My guest today is Megan Hannum, who is a developmental editor and writing coach at Why Not Edit. She helps underrepresented writers refine their words, strengthen their skills, and tell their best stories. It's been said she has a supernatural ability to see what's missing, which she uses to get writers from completed draft to publishable manuscript. I had Megan on not only because she's awesome and a guest expert on the Coffee Shop Writers Program, but because in the last couple weeks, we've been having a conversation in the writers group about um, what you need to pay attention to in which draft. And do I need to worry about this in the first draft? Do I need to worry about all the detail? Do I need to have everything there in the first draft? And the answer is no. So I decided to have Megan on because she's worked with so many writers and go through a kind of draft by draft process of what you need to worry about and more importantly what you don't so that you can get on with the process of writing. So I hope this will be as enjoyable for you to listen to as it was for me to record and that it's an episode you can come back to to reference as you go through your writing project and get closer and closer to completion. All right here we go with Megan. Hey Megan thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me I'm super excited to be here. So for everyone listening, Megan was on as one of our guest lecturers on the Coffee Shop Writers Group, and I just wasn't done with the conversation when we finished talking. And I think something that we've really gotten into lately on the show is the idea of being in process with your project. And Megan had so many great things to say about working on drafts and being in process that I knew that was something we needed to explore further. Yeah, it was such a great conversation. You have a great group of writers there in your your coffee shop. I know, they're super fun. So one of the things I think we got into in that conversation that I wanted to bring onto the show is the idea of what you need to worry about in a first draft versus what you can leave till later. So I almost feel like we could break this conversation up into let's have a first draft things to consider conversation and then we can have a second draft and then a maybe when you should stop writing drafts portion of the show so we can do this in maybe three acts or if you think there's more acts we can we can add them I'm a writer I work in a three-act structure I like it okay well let's go with the three acts so let's start I feel like Ira Glass like act one (laughs) the rough draft The, the first draft so let's let's go there What are your kind of primary thoughts? I also know you're working on a book as well, which is great Mm -hmm. timing. I love talking to people who are in the midst. So what are your thoughts and what do you think are the important things to keep in mind when in the first draft stage? Yeah. So first draft stage in my mind is definitely about laying down the bones of the story. So the biggest things that you want to Uh, be thinking about in the first draft are your plot structure and your character arcs, because those are the two things that supply you with the standard storytelling beats that are recognizable by all readers of all genres ever. And so that's what, that's what clues readers into, Oh, I am reading a story. That's what makes it 
a, a book rather than a series of events written down on paper. So you want to be thinking about things like with plot structure specifically, um, like we mentioned, the three act structure is the traditional way to structure your book. So, cause I don't remember who it was. So some classic, I think it's Aristotle, isn't it? It's yeah, Aristotelian yeah, structure. Said that every story has a beginning, a middle and an end. And so that's where the three act structure comes from. Uh, and within those acts, you have your setup at the very beginning, and then you have the inciting incident, which is the thing that kicks off the entire plot. Um, and this doesn't have to be a whole chapter or a whole scene even. It could just be like something someone says to your character. So it's a piece of dialogue, but that's still the inciting incident because it triggers whatever's going to happen next. And then from there you have your complications up to your climax, your falling action down to your resolution. Uh, so making sure that you have that structure there is super important for first draft especially because you can't play with the rules until you know them and have followed them. And then also you have the typical character arcs, um, you know, hero's journey is the most, the frequently used one. Then uh, that has all the recognizable things. It also, you'll also have an inciting incident within your character arc that nine times out of 10 is going to be the exact same thing as the plot. Yeah. And then you have the complications and the pinch points and all of that is happening internally within your character. Whereas the plot are the things that are happening to your character or around your character. The character arc is taking place within your character. So those are the two major areas to focus on draft one. So when you talk about the inciting incident for character arc, as well as for the story, I can see someone like me and maybe some listeners starting to worry that they have to have an inciting incident for each and every character who appears in the story. I mean, of course, if it's a character who's got some guts to them and is really involved in the story, they probably have some way in which they change throughout the course. But do you have to know all of this and have, do you have to figure out an inciting incident as you're writing each and every character in the book from the beginning? I'm going to go with no, because (laughs) (laughs) uh, like you said, you're going to want to think about that, especially if it is a character who is integral to the plot in some way or is um, like playing like a close subordinate role to your main character. But I would not worry about that until potentially draft two. Like if it's something that came to you already, then that's great. Like throw it in there just so you don't forget it. But don't not write your story just because you're stressed about figuring out your secondary character's arc because that will probably sort of that that's one of those things that will probably introduce itself and like when you go back and read through it you'll look for it to see did I do it on accident or did it pop up organically and if you are missing any of those moments you can go back and add them in. Okay, got it. That's helpful. So basically, mm-hmm. what you want to know, draft one, is major setup, inciting incident, rising accident, action, well, it could be a rising accident, um, <laughs> rising action, transformation, climax, kind of, and falling action at the end, and probably what the inciting incident is for your main character, if not the inciting incident of the whole story. Yes, exactly. Like I said on 
in the group the other day, you are building the foundation and the framework for your house. Like that is draft one. It's not going to look great. It'll only vaguely resemble a house, but you have to have that there before you can start to add things on. I have to say that metaphor is so helpful because as writing since that conversation, thinking of drafts as building a house and thinking, okay, am I trying to pick wallpaper or paint colors when I don't have walls yet really helps to frame the idea that, you know, okay, having blueprints even as an outline metaphor, maybe having a general layout and then just starting to put the foundation in as you're writing it down and, and kind of filling it in and fleshing it out really helps. Yeah. I love it. I, I like the visual quality of the metaphor too. I like that's, that really gets me when I'm thinking about things. If I have a picture in my head to help me conceptualize. So what else would be involved in laying the foundation? So if you've got these general concepts, maybe if you're an outliner, you've got it. If you're more of a pantser, you might, well, let's talk about pantsers for a minute. Like, what do you think a pantser needs? Cause an outliner, you already know you want an outline. So I'm not worried about you guys. But a pantser who's beginning and needs to build a strong foundation, what's kind of the bare minimum they can get away with so that they keep their pants identity, but um, are still able to successfully execute a first draft? So that they keep their pants. (laughs) Uh, Bare minimum, I would say they need a list of what is going to happen. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard of a writer who came up with an idea for a story and didn't have at least three or four scenes like already in their head. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a writer out there who sits down to write truly blank slate for longer than like three pages. Like I, I believe that you can sit down and have an idea for a character and start writing just because you want to spend time with them. But then when they start making decisions, a writer's brain will automatically also start making decisions. And so keeping a list of those decisions as you make them is going to be integral. I actually was guilty of this with my novel that I've been working on. I was also a dedicated pantser. And so I just started writing in a notebook and uh, got halfway through a like inch thick notebook before I realized that I had completely written past a plot point that I meant to include. And at that point I had to stop everything because the story was like trying to drag both feet through quicksand, like just not wanting to come out. I was losing interest and I didn't understand what was happening. And so I had to stop and go back and find that moment (laughs) where I meant to include this scene that had been like one of the first things that I thought of uh, when I had the idea for the novel. And so I had to go back and like not only drop it in there, but then I was like, okay, I need to put down the structure that I have in my head because it's there. I just resisted writing it down. And so I, that was when I did go through and put an outline together. So even if you are a fiercely dedicated pantser, I would say like 20, 30 pages in, pause yourself and just make a list of the things that have already happened and the things that you think are going to happen. And even though you've written it down, it's not 
unless you physically chiseled it into a rock somewhere, it's not set in stone. So you can absolutely change your mind about a scene later on. Like maybe you had an idea, you put it on the list, you got to that point and it doesn't feel right anymore. So you go a different direction. Like there's no, you're not locked into anything. I think this is a major, a major issue is that there is this thought process around both what's fun about writing a story and what creativity and creative freedom is. And that seems to come up a lot in terms of both pantsing, outlining, and first drafts. And that, I mean, we can talk about this more when we get into the second draft, but I've certainly been guilty of the belief that the first draft is the fun part and all the stuff later is really hard, but also that having an idea of where it's going to go takes all the fun out of it. And for the first time, actually really spending some time with an outline and working on a novel that I've really spent, I, I, I too spent a month like wandering in the darkness and realized I'd had a character sitting in a coffee shop for like five scenes and just wasn't ready to move on to the next because I just didn't know what was going to happen. And it was only by going back and spending some time and outlining that I was able to sort that out and then enjoy writing again. So I kind of want to myth bust a little bit about where the creativity is in the first draft and does making an outline or making decisions before you sit down and write it out really kill the creativity or not. Mine, I'm obviously revealing my my bias and thinking that no, actually that's not the case, but I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I actually really agree with you because I mean, like I said, I had that, you know, experience that like come to Jesus moment with my own outlining situation. And so after I sat down and did that, I actually found a different type of freedom in that once I had the outline, once I had the structure of where the story was going, I could open up my document and write whichever scene was speaking to me at that moment, which is a different type of creativity. Like I was no longer tied into writing linearly. Um, if I wanted to pick up right where I left off, obviously I was perfectly capable of doing that too. But if for some reason I woke up with an idea for a scene that was a few chapters ahead, I could absolutely also sit down and write that scene because I knew exactly where it was going to go and how it played into the rest of the plan. So I don't, I don't think that having an outline stifles anything. And I think you, you can get more creative once you know where you're going or you get creative in a different way anyway, once you know where you're going. It's the difference between when people ask me to, as an editor, look at something unfinished versus something that is finished. If I get something that's unfinished, I have to make guesses at what's gonna happen next and I can't truly advise them on anything. But if I know the end point, then I can see opportunities for getting there in different and new and more exciting ways. Mm, I love that. Let's slow it down even a little bit more because I want, I'd love to hear and, and have you share about how you're technically pulling off the process of writing non-linearly. Because for me, I mean, I think a lot of people probably are dealing with either one long document or if you're writing by hand, 
as I mean, I'm doing right now, I am writing linearly at the moment because it's just like in a notebook. And then I'm going to play it up once I type it into the computer. But if you could share a little bit about your actual nitty gritty process of getting that first draft down, I think it would be helpful. Yeah, sure. So I'm working in Scrivener. Uh, I was also writing by hand, like I said, when I first started out and filled up half of a very thick notebook. And then when I realized that my structure was what was lacking, I purchased Scrivener because I heard that it has amazing outline capabilities and it is true. Um, it and is I, true. It is so true. Uh, the corkboard view is potentially my favorite thing. It's so good. It ever. even looks like a corkboard. I know. And then like to be able to digitally like drag and drop. Oh, it was just like I was in heaven. So that's that's how I'm able to do that because I typed up what I had into Scrivener and I separated it by chapter and by scene. And I was then able to um, to see what I had already written. Because that was the other thing about stopping to outline in the first place was I was like, well, I don't want to have to trash everything I've already done. Like, look at all this story I've already written, even the parts of it I wasn't in love with at first, like potentially could end up being useful once I've figured all of this out. So yeah, so I got Scrivener and I typed up everything that I had written by hand. And in that tool, I was able to see like, okay, I had put this scene here and I didn't love it, but now that these other things are actually going to happen, it will work in this other place and it works better because it's where it's supposed to be now. Um, so, and so that's what allows me to, like I said, open up my document and look through my outline. It has, in addition to the magic corkboard feature on the side, there's a sidebar that has um, an outline of a chapter and then broken down by scenes. And so you can click and each one of those will open up its own document. It's a beautiful thing. It really, it really is. is. It really is recommended. If anyone is currently working in Word and wants to figure Just out. Stop. Just yeah. stop right now. <laughs> yeah. So I think part of it too is is structure and being able to bounce around. I think that's great too. Is there anything else before we kind of shift to act two? I mean, one thing I think that's important to note is what you're telling, you're not telling us to think about in draft one. I think there's a lot of things that people think they have to figure out in the first draft, um, myself included, feeling like, oh, I need to know, um, I need to know what everything looked like. I need to know what color everything was. I need to know what it smelled like. And all of that detail has to be there from the very, very beginning. And or else if it doesn't, I'm a bad writer and I'm sensorily deprived and I'm just writing a bunch of crappy plot and oh no. Definitely research as procrastination is a huge danger that I try to warn every writer I come into contact with against uh, in, in regards to having to figure out all of the details um, as far as like setting and world building and all of that kind of thing. I definitely consider that a later drafts deal. If you have to do research because maybe you're writing like a historical novel or you're writing a novel that takes place somewhere that is not where you live or a place that you've only visited or a place that you've never been before, in my opinion, the best thing to do is to research until you can get going. Once you have enough information that you can flesh out this structure that we've been talking about, then you hit the ground running 
And as you're writing the first draft, you make notes to yourself, like research what this would have looked like in 1400. And then you go back in the next draft, having done that research and you put it in. Um, but you can definitely get bogged down in the details. Uh, sort of like you said earlier, are you trying to put wallpaper on walls that don't exist yet? And I think that a lot of the detail can be wallpaper, um, which is fun. And if you are going on a scene and you're really like jamming on those descriptions and it's coming to you easy, then go with it by all means. I'm not saying fight it just because you're in the first draft. Uh, if, you're, if your first draft is a little, little on the meatier side, that's not a bad place to be at all. But if you are struggling to include those details, then you are sweating the small stuff a little before it's time. Yeah, and I think also, if you think about if you're getting all of those sensory details before you've done all the research, just know that they might change. Yeah, for sure. But I think it's always, you know, it's always a challenge to think about, you know, when you're in a first draft, I'm feeling it's slightly liberating to be like, okay, you know, this may shift, but we're just going to build a little bit more of a layer and know that there will be something stronger to stand on. And then the next, the next draft, it will get more stable still. Exactly. Like I said, you can't build upon anything until the foundation is there. So make a decision, make a call. You're a writer, make it up. <laughs> It'll be okay. And then you can go back and you can make it more authentic later, or you can make it more interesting later. So with that in mind, I think to sum up draft one, all you need to do is get the foundation down, have the basic sense of the way the action proceeds and what in general happens for your character. So once you've got that down, you can move on to draft two. Exactly. So let's, let's talk about draft two. So what, you know, cause the thing about draft two in many ways is it's like the middle of the book. It's like, you're not finishing the book yet, but you're kind of mucking around in the middle. So what do you think you need to accomplish in a, in a second or middle draft period before you move on to kind of polishing and, and getting the finishing touches on in draft three? Yeah. So we've sort of already touched on a lot of these things just as we were talking about not thinking not about them. Doing. Yeah. So this is when you think about those things. So like we talked about flushing out secondary characters more, finding their arcs, finding the beats that are supposed to exist for them. That would be a draft two thing or maybe a draft three, draft four. I mean, however many drafts it takes for you to really get all of this in. Um, you're also going to be looking at the scenery, setting the scene a bit more, like maybe... You just really needed to get a conversation down, so you just wrote down the conversation in draft one. In draft two, you're going to come back and you're going to situate those characters in time and space. Like, what, are they standing? Are they sitting? What are they doing during this conversation? Um, this is also where you can insert more detail internally for your main character. So that was definitely a focus during draft one, but it not going to be perfect because it was draft one. So this is where you're going to fine tune those reactions. Like maybe you wrote something and you go back and reread it and you're like, well, that's way over the top. And so you can dial that back or maybe it wasn't dialed up enough. And so you can dial up their, their reaction. This is also where you're going to be thinking about word choice, where you're going to be 
wanting to make sure that you are using the strongest and the most interesting words, but not necessarily the most complicated. Um, I'm, I'm definitely not advocating for writers going through their second draft and just throwing in all the words that they know because this is where you do that. <laughs> uh, a longer sentence is not necessarily a better one. It's probably also not the point where you want to just get out the thesaurus and start changing words for ones that look prettier. Definitely not. No. But generally speaking, draft two is is the first rehearsal, I guess. Or, yeah, maybe the first rehearsal. So draft one is like your sight reading. And you're just playing what has been put in front of you. And draft two is when you are focusing on the areas where you know you made a mistake um, or you know that it could have been better and you're going back through those scenes or chapters or moments and you are making them better and it doesn't have to be perfect even in the next draft like that's sort of the beauty of it the drafting process is like a writer's rehearsal time you know every other art has rehearsal built into the practice of it but I feel like a lot of times writers resist that idea and they feel like if they don't get it right right away or if it doesn't if if everything they write doesn't sound pretty then they're not really a writer and that's so not the case every book you've ever read is someone's final performance and even then it pro they probably have six scenes in it where they're like I really just wish I had one more shot at that oh so. I'm sure the other thing that you, you've you said, um, I've heard you say that I find really helpful is thinking about things that you might want to change or things that are a little bit clunky and clumsy in the first draft that you can take another stab at. And one of which was physical descriptions of characters and ways in which as a developmental editor, you see people kind of using some using some strategies that could be a little bit more graceful. So maybe you could share a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I think that was within the context of talking about info dumps. Um, yes, let's talk about so, info dumps and getting rid of those yes. in draft two. Info dumps are definitely a thing that you are going to want to seek and destroy in draft two. Um, they happen in draft one, and it's totally fine. Leave them be. You'll get them later. But uh, when And when I say info dump, I mean stretches of, well, not time necessarily, but stretches of page, I guess, where you are giving the reader necessary often information as far as maybe the plot or sometimes characters and so you'll have a whole scene that's dedicated to your character getting dressed in the morning just because you really want the reader to know what they look like and I mean that's great that's important you want your reader to have some concept of what this of this person that they're reading about physically um, but there are way more interesting ways to do that and so when I come across a section like that, if it doesn't feel natural, if there isn't a reason for me reading about why she's getting dressed in the morning or how she's getting dressed in the morning, then I pick out the details that feels like what the author's trying to get across. Like maybe she spends a whole paragraph brushing her hair. And it's like, okay, so the reader or the author really wants the reader to know what her hair looks like. But there could be a much more natural way to get that across, like maybe she's having a conversation with another character and she runs her hands through her hair. And at that point you can say like she ran her hand through her raven locks or something way less cliche than that. 
but you know through her brown waves the and that kind of thing and that is a much more natural way for the reader to be like oh hey she has brown hair and it's wavy and it's long enough for her to run her hands through it and that also just shows a lot more faith in your readers than an info dump does an info dump feels like the author assuming that the reader's not going to understand those details or pick up on those details any other way. And you don't want to insult your reader's intelligence at all. I think I can picture these like in like a really cheesy movie when, you know, if you think of it as like the scene where someone's like, oh, my goodness, my ex-wife has come into the room. I feel such turmoil and sadness because you left me three weeks ago with my best friend. However, will I deal with this? Like, there's probably another way to communicate all of that without somebody having either an internal an internal monologue or or saying it to, you know, the character who already obviously knows that this is the case. Definitely. So we're going to kill info dumps in draft two. And that could be, I mean, it could be like you talked about, like people getting dressed. Don't, yeah, people getting dressed just for the sake of showing what they look like or what they wear. Probably we can let that go in draft two. Um, mm-hmm. any other classic info dump scenarios that you've seen that people should be on the lookout for? Backstory. Ah. Info, info dumps tend to be chock full of character backstory. And I know writers love to get really in touch with their characters and know everything about them. And that's fantastic. But the reader only needs to know what is pertinent to the story that they are reading. So if you've written your character's entire life story, including, you know, their sixth grade experience, that's fantastic. But you need to be able to decide whether or not the reader really needs to know about that sixth grade experience. Um, And then even if all the information in the info dump is necessary information, it's just like, the physical description stuff, you have to find more natural and more appropriate places to place all that information because your reader's going to pick up on it. Like they're, when you're reading, you're, most people are only reading. So you're focused and you're giving the book your attention. So they're going to pick up on these details as you lay them out, even if they're not like highlighting it, you know, like their brain's going to hold on to it. So have some faith in your readers um, and break up that backstory. And you can do that, again, in conversations with other characters. Or maybe, and I think potentially better depending on your story, um, if an event that is currently happening triggers a memory of some kind, then that is an appropriate place to insert some backstory. Um, Anytime that information is directly impacting the current events, then that's where you want to put your information. I think the other crucial thing about backstory is that it's hard. It's like when we know a lot about something, we want to be like, look, I know all this cool stuff that I want to share. But, you know, I mean, we talked with Jay Ryan Stradall, who wrote Kitchens of the Great Midwest, um, for last week's episode and how he had to rein himself in from his incredible research on tomatoes and lycopene content, because even though there was a whole bunch of food in reference to tomatoes, he's like, I had to cut that whole chapter out because I was just going down a rabbit hole. So part of it is, as you're saying, like 
is it pertinent to the story or not? And that can be a really good guide. And the other thing is, if you think about books that you love, and I can think of many where they never really give you a definitive answer about something. And in some ways, not knowing is the most engaging thing about the story. Like you never fully know, like, did those, were those people like, were they former lovers or not? You'll never know. Like those kinds of things, like withholding can be as significant to a plot as revealing everything in a backstory. Yeah, I agree completely. I was actually just going to say that research is another place where uh, writers tend to overshare. And so, yeah, you really want to make sure that when you are giving detail, because draft two is the place where you are going to be inserting detail, um, you want to make sure that the details that you are adding to the story are doing just that, that they're adding to the story, that they're not just bogging things down or just in there because you found it particularly interesting. You, you need to make sure that your details are either telling the reader something about your character or telling your reader something about the plot. Uh, because those are the two, those are the two easiest ways to make sure that your detail is actually a necessary one is by giving this detail. Am I adding to the reader's experience of this character or am I adding to this reader's experience of this plot? Is it helping them to understand something? Got it. So I think that's a pretty good overview of draft two or middle drafts. Is there anything else that we've missed that you think people should know or consider or work on in sort of middle drafts? No, I think we've pretty well covered that horse. (laughs) All right. So let's, let's talk about final drafts, like as you're moving towards the end of it and what happens when you get to that point and maybe when you want to start to consider passing your manuscript off to an editor or working with an editor? Like, how will you know that it's time for someone else to be in on the process with you? And what do Mm. you need to handle first? That is a great question. So first of all, I want to sort of call back to what we were talking about earlier, where I said that even your favorite published books, I'm positive that those authors have something about them that they still wanted to tweak. So there's definitely the potential that you'll just never feel completely done with it. But you, I, I would say that the, the sign that you're ready to pass it off to an editor is when you yourself feel tapped of ideas. If you are feeling like, all right, I've researched the crap out of this story. I've put, I've made every change that I can think to make as far as making this story different and more interesting. Um, that's the point at which it is time to get fresh eyes because that's I think the biggest benefit of handing it off to an editor is just getting somebody else's brain in on this thing and they're going to point out either changes that you made that were fantastic and you're going to feel really good about yourself or they're going to point out other areas that you missed and you're going to be like oh I didn't even think of that because this has been in my brain for so long I'm no longer reading this document I'm reciting it to myself I didn't even notice that anymore So yeah, so when you are starting to feel like you're just completely tapped as far as making changes and adding details, um, that's the point at which you're going to want to seek some outside perspective. So I have a couple of questions. One is that you referenced like there are different types of developmental editors. So I think maybe 
it would be helpful for people to know those. And the other thing I think would be helpful to know is at what stage in the process between writing the book and publication are you seeking, are people traditionally seeking a developmental editor before they submit a book for publication? Is this something they generally do if they're going to self-publish? Like where does a develop, like what kinds of developmental editors are there and where do they fit in the publishing landscape? Yeah. So first part, there are definitely two different ways of working with a developmental editor. Um, Some of them work with writers who have an idea, either like at the very beginning, it's just a nugget or here I've written some pages. I feel like this is a book and the developmental editor will work with them to flesh it out and turn it into a book. Or the other way is you've written a draft, maybe two or three, And you, like I said, have gotten to that point where you're like, I have no more ideas, but I feel like this could still use some fine tuning. And I want to make sure that it could, (laughs) that it doesn't need any more fine tuning. And that's the point at which you would hand it off to a developmental editor for deep critique and revision help. Second question, where do they fit in, in the publishing process? Um, I think it is so important for anyone considering self-publishing to work with a developmental editor because the editors in-house at traditional publishing houses will do some developmental editing with you. Um, Even some agents, to take it a step before that, will do some hands-on developmental editing with you if they really believe in your story. Um, So it's vitally important for a self-published author because they don't have anybody else to help them with that. Um, but as far as people thinking of submitting their manuscripts for traditional publishing, seeing a developmental editor can help you land an agent even because an agent is more likely to take on a book that's going to be less work for them in that way, unless they really love doing the developmental work, which I, I imagine there are a number of them out there who really do love it. Um, but a busy agent who's got, who's like a hot commodity, got a lot of submissions coming in, they're going to want something that feels ready to send to publishers. And so working with a developmental editor is what's going to get your manuscript to that level. What have you seen more of just in terms of who's seeking out working with you on their manuscript? I've actually had a decent mix of both, um, I think I get more inquiries from self-published people looking to self-publish, but I have also worked with, I think an equal number of people who are planning on going the traditional route. Got it. Okay. Good to know. So what should somebody think about when they're, if they're considering working with a developmental editor, what kind of questions should they be asking so they know that somebody's the right fit? Like, what are the good interview questions to ask a potential developmental editor? That is an awesome question. So I start off every engagement with my clients with what I call the getting to know you call, which is where I actually ask them all about themselves and this story and where it came from, why they wrote it, um, what they want to get out of having written it, what they want readers to get out of having reading, reading it, um, having read it, (laughs) because I feel like that, I feel like the most important part of my job is that I am helping them get their story where they want it to be. I'm not imposing what I want the story to be 
onto the story. So I think the best thing to do is to find an editor who is asking you those questions. And if they're not asking the questions, then offering them that information or finding out if they're interested in that information would be a good first step because any editor who is sort of acting like they're the end all be all they know what's right for your book is not going to be a good I feel like they're not gonna be a good fit for most writers and they're also probably not the best editor that you could work with I have this really weird it's probably because I live in Los Angeles but I have this weird reference which is totally outside the literary world but I have heard people talk about people who all go to the same plastic surgeon and you can start to see this kind of trend in in the way people who get a bunch of work done they all start to look the same and I it makes me think of an editor who's like well this is the way books are supposed to work and if they work with all of them they're starting to impose their signature look and feel onto a manuscript and then it starts to look more like their style than the book underneath. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that happens more often in a traditional publishing setting, actually. And I feel like that's why a lot of writers are actually seeking out self-publishing these days, because editors in a traditional publishing house, like that is part of their job is to actually make your book look like their book um, or look like one of their books. So I, I think that the that I think that that thought makes a lot of sense because in the industry, so to speak, in the publishing industry, that is something that definitely happens. Um, but if you are self-publishing, then I think you're definitely going to want to find an editor who's interested in helping you achieve your vision because that's why you're self-publishing in the first place is because you have one and that's what you want to achieve as opposed to what someone else thinks you should be wanting to achieve. Yeah, I feel like that could be a whole episode unto itself. The kind of, I mean, we've had also guests recently talk about the difference between doing an MFA in creative writing versus doing an MA in therapeutic writing and learning to write like your own voice very specifically versus certain MFAs that are more about writing to fit publishing requirements so that you get your book published and and notions of what's good and what's not good and what that looks like and, and what a successful book is. I mean, I feel like that's a whole conversation that could go on for weeks. Absolutely. And I'm actually about to go join an MFA program myself that I'm pretty excited about. But the reason that I applied to this one, it was the only one that I applied to was because their focus is actually on developing you as a writer and like giving you a sense of what a working professional writer's life looks like. And so there's obviously the workshops and, you know, you're going to produce a thesis, which is the first half of your novel or whatever. But I definitely didn't get that impression that I got from like 90% of the other MFA programs that I looked at where like the focus is on churning out the type of writer, the type of writing that the publishers are going to want. So if I may ask, which program did you pick? That would be the low residency program at the Oregon State University Cascades campus. Cool. Yeah, I'm sure people are like, what program is it? I must know. <laughs> um, that's great. Also, because if you're in Oregon, then you're not that far from Pulse. So exactly. if you're traveling from afar, you can get close to the book mecca <laughs> of, uh, oh, of the United States. 
I feel like Powell's is like the West Coast Mecca and maybe the Strand is on the East Coast. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I went to New York in March and that was like my one thing. My friends were like, I want to go see this landmark and this whatever. And I was like, I just want to go to the Strand. If I don't go to the Strand while I'm in New York City, I will regret it for the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I, it's all about bookstore tourism. I mean, we go to Portland for that. People who come to LA want to go to the last bookstore, which just always has that crazy photograph of the rainbow tunnel and everything. I'm always telling people mm-hmm. to go there. So yeah, it's all about the big bookstore that you go to visit. I have yeah. them in every city I love pretty much. Got to catch them all. <laughs> yeah. So this has been amazing and so helpful. And I hope that everybody listening gets to have a sense of like, okay, am I in the draft where I need to worry about this now? Or can I wait? And you don't have to figure everything out at the very beginning, which to me as a concept is a huge relief being in first draft stage right now with my own novels. So thank you for that permission for me, but I know it's going to be a huge relief to everybody who's been listening. Definitely. And your first draft A lot of people say the first draft has to suck. I don't think it has to suck. It might not actually be that bad. It might be perfectly readable, but you have so many opportunities to make it better and to fine tune it. And you don't have to show it to anyone until you feel like it's ready. So I think that's the other thing is a lot of times writers sit down to put words on paper and they immediately are thinking about someone looking at this. And what if someone was going to look at this right now? And it's like, that's not going to happen until you say that it's going to happen. So take a deep breath, take your time. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's it. That's a good mantra. And I think it does free people up in order to keep writing. And uh, the the weird phobia we've shared in the coffee shop writers group is of the the secret publishing elf who may steal your book away from you and publish it in the middle of the night before you're ready. Um, we have yet to spot this elf and it's probably my own figment of my imagination, but it's good to have more and more people who refute the publishing elf's existence so that you can safely write your first draft in peace. Yes, for sure. You are safe from the publishing elf, I promise. (laughs) Okay, excellent. Thank you. We're going to have a whole uh, wall of signatures on why it's okay. The publishing elf is not coming for you. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on, Megan. It's been really great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.